0: Again, Daniel chapter one is where we're going to be. Uh, just a couple of things as we kind of set out on this journey. Now we're getting is what I believe will be a profitable journey through the book of Daniel over the next several months. Uh, we're going to take a look at this book with a desire to understand its teachings, both for those in Daniel's day and for us now, some twenty six hundred years later. Now, Daniel is a book much like Revelation that is often presented as filled with difficult-to-understand teachings and prophecies. And now, while there are some challenging passages in the book of Daniel, to be sure, we will see, as we discovered in our time when we studied Matthew chapter 24 and 25, that if we approach it with a desire to understand the truth of its teachings as presented in context, uh, we will discover that it is not as difficult as some make it out to be. As we studied through Matthew 24 and 25, we, we looked at that passage and we'll look at Daniel from a perspective that may be uh, unfamiliar to some of you, depending upon where you grew up and depending upon your background in eschatology, uh, but we're going to look at it from a perspective of one that is really grounded deeply in church history, and one that was for the prevailing history of the church, the prevalent viewpoint, uh, really until the spread and the rise of dispensationalism starting uh, in the mid-1800s. We're going to look at this passage again, as these books, as very clearly as we can in context. What would this have meant to Daniel? What would this have meant to those in Daniel's day? And applying it from that perspective, uh, I believe, will, will enrichen our time here together. Now, this morning, we're going to just kind of do a little introductory. We're going to be looking at the first two verses of this book. Uh, one of the things you'll notice that's going to be different about this series is that uh, many times we're going to be looking at a complete chapter uh, in our time together on Sunday morning. Uh, and because it is narrative, especially in the early part of the book of Daniel. So you really need the entirety of that chapter to unwrap what Daniel is trying to teach us. And in fact, what God is teaching us through the words of Daniel. Uh, so there will be some extended portions of scripture uh, during some of those sermons on Sunday morning. And I promise that that will not uh, belabor the rest of the sermon uh, to an extended period of time as well. Uh, So uh, Daniel chapter 1, if you would stand for the honor and the reading of God's Word. Again, we're going to be looking at the first two verses. This is the Word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his god and he brought the vessels into his into the treasury of his god you can be seated The first question that we ask about this and as we begin any book study is just a little bit of introductory information about who this book is written by, what it's for, what its purpose is. And obviously, you see there the title heading, The Book of Daniel. Now, Daniel does not claim authorship inside of the book itself, but he does refer to himself in both the first and the third person. Uh, Daniel was a Jew of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, this story is really characterized of his being carried away out of Judah or Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. Uh, and it is a story that he relays of how to live in the midst of that time. So now there have been over the years uh, skeptics about the authorship of the book of Daniel, Uh, Those who would be on the more liberal side of biblical criticism uh, would point to some of the language that Daniel uses, uh, saying that it's far too advanced uh, for somebody uh, in his period of time. Uh, They point to some of his understanding of theological aspects uh, of the Messiah, of the church, of things that would happen in the future. They say it's far too advanced for him to discover. Uh, they would also point to the facts that in the Jewish canon of Scripture, uh, that the book of Daniel is not found in the prophecy books, but in the writing books. And really, the ultimate thing that most critics of this book come to pass is that Daniel has, at least in their perspective, far too much knowledge of future events to actually be writing about these things before the events occurred it's the trouble with the prophetic that they have. And so they say that, in fact, Daniel was not written in the time in which Daniel lived, but was written some, maybe some 400 years later uh, as the oral tradition had passed down through history until a time when people, again, had a little more knowledge, a little more understanding, and then they wrote down this book and attributed to Daniel as such. The problems that we find with that is that Daniel here, as he's writing, presents himself as a one who is writing about future events. He presents himself as one who is living in the time in which he is writing about. So if he did not write the book and it was written much later, then either Daniel is a liar or a fraud. And he's being deceptive because he's writing it in such a way that he, he very clearly wants the reader to understand that these are things that he himself experienced. So it. it, it it points us to the fact of the question, okay, did Daniel really write this book? Was Daniel truly prophet? And we find the answer to this in Matthew chapter 24, in the words of Jesus. He tells us there, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through what? Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place. So here we find Jesus very clearly saw, understood, and proclaimed that Daniel was writing this at the time that these things occurred, and that he was a prophet, even though Daniel doesn't really claim the title of prophet, and he really doesn't operate as many Old Testament prophets do. You're going to find as we study this book, there's not a time where Daniel stands up and preaches and proclaims the word of God to an audience of people. Daniel is granted by God's sovereignty really a high audience because he's welcomed in to the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and to the other rulers in Babylon. He's welcomed into the inner chambers and allowed to give response and allowed to give teachings to them and instruction about different kinds of dreams and visions. So God really kind of uses him in a very different prophetic sense, but is no less important than the other prophetic teachers of the day. So Jesus himself Demonstrates here that Daniel is a prophet. Daniel is going to speak of these things in such a way that he really tells the history of the entire world from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the time of Jesus Christ. As we read through this book, we're going to see that Daniel, before any of these things ever happened, he saw the rise and fall of Babylon. He saw the rise and fall of the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. All of these great empires that when they were in existence, the world thought they were unstoppable. But Daniel, very clearly, before any of them had ever come upon the scene and the earth, knew by God's sovereignty and by God's vision that these empires were going to rise and then ultimately be crushed. So Daniel is writing this book somewhere around the time of 530 B.C., He's writing this book towards the end or at the end of that 70-year exile in Babylon. He was taken captive around 605 B.C. when the events that we see here in verses 1 and 2 were unveiled. Now to understand a little bit about the background of this book, we need to understand kind of how it's divided. And this is important. Oftentimes we might not talk about this in studying a book, but it's important for us to understand in this particular book uh, because that we have a greater concept of what's being taught here. Uh, The first part of Daniel is in a narrative sense. Uh, Chapters one through six uh, are narrative discussion. He's just relaying the history of this exile, the history of the things that happened along the way. And then the second half of the book are the prophecy chapters, where he begins to have these visions that God gives him. And he looks forward and he sees what is going to happen on the worldwide scale. The interesting thing about Daniel is that it's written really in two languages uh, in the original books. Uh, The first part of the book, uh, chapters 1 through the 4th verse of chapter 2, and then chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. And then chapter 2, starting at verse 5 through chapter 7, are written in Aramaic. Now, you might ask your question, if you're going to write a book, why would you write it in two different languages? Well, most scholars point out, and I believe it also to be the case, is that because of who Daniel was speaking to in those verses and in those passages of Scripture, Remember, when, when these books were written, there were no chapter designations, now, there were no verses, we, those were added much later on just as an ease to the reader to find their place. So Daniel begins this book in Hebrew because he's speaking to God's people. These are things that are related to the Jewish people. And then as he ends his book, he goes back to speaking to the Jewish people again. And so again, he reverts back to the language of his home nation, And in the middle of that section, there's a section where he's speaking very clearly to the Gentiles, to those outside of God's covenant family. So he uses the vernacular and the language of the day. Uh, much like if, if we were to go on a mission trip somewhere and we're going to go work in a foreign country and be there as missionaries, you don't expect the people of that nation to learn English. You learn their language so that you can deliver to them clearly and, and faithfully what God has called you to speak. So Daniel is speaking there in their language, the language of the day, in order that they may more clearly understand what God desires for them to hear in these prophetic visions. Daniel is oftentimes referred to as an apocalyptic book. That word comes from the word apocalypse. It means an unveiling or a revelation. Uh, We know that that includes also the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Ezekiel, parts of Zechariah. But Daniel is not entirely apocalyptic. Uh, Oftentimes people kind of lift it up there as this entirely apocalyptic book, but it really is not so. There's really a a much broader picture that Daniel is trying to teach uh, the people of Israel and to teach us as well. And to approach the book from an entirely apocalyptic sense really convolutes and destroys the, the message, really, and the theme of what Daniel wants to relay to us. Now, the style of this book is written in what is called progressive parallelism. As humans, as we read a book, we're used to reading a book from beginning to end. We start at the beginning, you go from page one, you read to the end. And typically, the way literature works is as you're reading a story, the author is building upon that story, right? From the beginning, he's building up, he's building up, uh, there's, there's moments of highs and lows, and then you bring the book to a conclusion. But in progressive parallelism, what the author does is the author starts from the beginning and goes to the end, and then starts back at the beginning and goes to the end, and starts back at the beginning and goes to the end, as many times as he deems necessary, with each one of those progressions telling a different point of view or a different perspective of the story. And so the story of world history is being involved here with a different focus on events or series of events that are taking place. So this is what Daniel is going to do. So just understand that over the coming months, we're going to hear some repetitive themes and some repetitive ideas because Daniel will, again, start back over at the beginning and carry us through to the end, and start back at the beginning and carry us through to the end, each time looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. Now, with that out of the way, I want you to notice verse 1 here of the book of Daniel. It says there, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. What we find here is a picture of what was taking place uh, in the realm and the world of Daniel. Uh, The the nation of Israel had been separated into two kingdoms. Uh, The northern kingdom had rebelled against God. Uh, They had fallen off into idolatry, and the southern kingdom endured for just a little bit longer. And so the southern kingdom was ruled by Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim, Was the eldest son of King Josiah. He took the throne after his younger brother, Jehoahaz, had only ruled for three months. There was a lot of battles going on at this time as nations and kingdoms decided and tried to to establish themselves on a worldwide front. Uh, They wanted to be the ruling empires of the of the day. And so Egypt at that time, before Babylon had taken over, Egypt was the dominant empire, and Pharaoh Necho had really kind of had Jerusalem and and Israel under his thumb. And so after Josiah died, uh, Jehoahaz had been put on the throne by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. But after just a few short months, he realized that he did not like the way that Jehoahaz uh, Jehoahaz was ruling things. So he disposed or deposed him, took him off the throne, and put Jehoiakim on the throne. Now, the Scripture tells us that Jehoiakim was an evil ruler. Uh, He was not one who pleased God. He was not one who was obedient to God. He was one who was entirely and completely disobedient to the Lord. And so he he was one who did not lead the people of God back to where they needed to be, but instead continued to lead them further and further away from the clear teachings of the scripture. Now, there are some, again, and I like to point these out along the way because as we are in the world and we talk to people about the Scriptures, uh, some critics here point to an issue because Daniel states uh, that this happened during the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, uh, whereas Jeremiah says that it happened in the fourth year. Now, this is easily understood by the difference between the accounting of dates, not just in the year of the Jewish calendar and the Babylonian calendar, uh, but also in the consideration of how different cultures viewed or counted the reign of a king. Uh, so in many calendars, the year for the Jewish calendar, where the year began, um, it began earlier, uh, or, or so when Daniel was looking at it, he judged it as a, a later point in that year or counted the year later than, uh, than Jeremiah did. But there's also the perspective of the Babylonians, Counted the first year, um, the first year of the king's reign, whether it was a short period of time or whether it was a full year, they counted that as year zero. Whereas the Jewish people, and Daniel again, writing because his heart belonged uh, to Jerusalem and his heart belonged to Israel, they did not count that as year zero, they counted that as year one. So, there's this differentiation there, but it does not take anything away from the truth of what Daniel is stating. It just has to do with the differences in the way that these looked at the calendar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was ruling here in Jerusalem, excuse me, ruling here in Babylon. Uh, He came to the throne, in fact, the same year that these events happened. Uh, His father, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, was ruling, and actually Nebuchadnezzar was out on the battlefield. And as he was out on the battlefield and he's coming against Jerusalem, he learns that his father has died and he returns and takes the throne. So again, there's a point of criticism that some people point out here is that when he actually defeated Jerusalem here in this first siege, he was not actually king because he would return from this battle and to go and to take his position on the throne. But again, this is reckoned in the sense that Daniel, writing this some 70 years later, refers to Nebuchadnezzar as king much the same way that we refer to David in the Bible as King David, even in events that happened prior to his taking the throne there in Israel. As I said, Nebuchadnezzar attacked uh, Jerusalem three different times. The first one here in 605 B.C., Uh, The second one would happen in 597 B.C. At that time, Jehoiakim himself was was captured and taken into captivity along with the royal family, many of the armies, and this is when the prophet Ezekiel was taken into captivity. And the third, and perhaps the one that we're most familiar with, happened in 586 B.C. Uh, This is when Nebuchadnezzar attacked and completely destroyed uh, the city and, and led the rest of the people into captivity. So this is all happening here in this period of time where the world is really kind of uncertain what's going to happen next. There had been many different nations rising and falling, but now Babylon has kind of established themselves as the dominant world force. And so they come into Jerusalem and they besieged it. Besieged it means to attack it. Now, there's some disagreement about how this exactly happened. Daniel does not give us, nor does any other place in the Scripture give us, a a demonstration of how long this besieging took. Jerusalem was a greatly fortified city. Uh, It it had great defenses on all the walls. So there are some that even suggest that perhaps the people just opened the gates and let Jehoiakim and the nation of Babylon in which if you think about it, probably would have made a lot of sense. The people were not following after the Lord. They were not being obedient to him. And they probably saw how great Babylon was and that perhaps it was this temptation to just say, well, let's just give ourselves over to them. Uh, so we don't know exactly what happened there, but we do know that this event was something that is so significant on the stage of not just world events, but so significant in the stage of, of spiritually and theologically and what was happening to God's people And what God intended to do there. And that's what we find in verse two. Notice there. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The opening of this verse points to a theological perspective that we must understand. Not only for an accurate understanding of Daniel, really, but for life itself. Oftentimes, when you see the book of Daniel presented, especially these early chapters, you see it presented from the perspective of Daniel being the hero of the story. Right? You have Daniel standing up against the, uh, the king and the, the food that they will eat. Uh, you have the, the four Hebrew boys getting uh, cast into, the, uh, the, the, cast into the, the fiery furnace. You have the uh, story of Daniel and the lion's den and his resolve there. And so you oftentimes hear this phrase, you know, dare to be a Daniel, right? Dare, dare to be like Daniel. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you the story this morning. Daniel is not the hero of the story in the book of Daniel. God is the hero of the story. Uh, we we want to recognize and understand that what Daniel is trying to relate to us is not how great he was as a hero, but how faithful God is as a covenant keeping God to his people. So I want you to notice what it says there at the beginning of verse two. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar was a mighty ruler. By earthly perspective, he was unstoppable as the world looked and saw Nebuchadnezzar and his rule and his reign, they would have deemed him as an unstoppable force. There, there was no one else on the earth, no one else that ruled and reigned like Nebuchadnezzar did. He had this great, mighty power. And in fact, he was very proud of himself for that. Later on in this book, we're going to read in chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, "...is this not Babylon the great?" which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty. He was unstoppable. From the world's perspective, there would really have been no surprise that Jerusalem fell at his hand. There would have been no reason as to why it happened, because his power, his might, his army, his conquering strength was unstoppable. So people would have looked at it and said, well, it's no, it's no wonder Jerusalem fell. They, they, had no, they had no ability to stand against him. Nebuchadnezzar thought it was in his own strength, it was in his own power. But Daniel tells us here that the real truth was, it was that God was the one who handed Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't conquer Jerusalem. God handed them over to him. And so we ask the question, well, well, why would God do this? Right? We, we know Jerusalem in the Scriptures is the city of God. It's, it's God's city. It's God's people. Why would God hand his people over to the most wicked nation on the face of the earth? Why would he hand them over to the hands of this wicked ruler? Well, we need to understand what God had told his people. Over and over again, started with Moses. God had relayed to his people what he would do for them if they followed him. If they followed him, he would give them blessing. They would never lack for anything. They would have everything that they needed. He would care for them. He would watch over them. He would protect them. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And for the first 14 verses, God lays out these beautiful phrases of how he will bless his people if they will be obedient to him. If they will listen to him and follow after him and do what he has called them to do. But now the latter part of Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 68, lays out what God says will happen to them if they do not listen to him. If you choose to not listen and to not do what I've asked you to do, not will you not receive blessing, but in fact you will receive discipline. You will receive curses from me. And I want to point out just a few of those because it really, again, lays the state of this. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm just going to pull out a few verses here. He says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the ends of the earth as an eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. It shall besiege you and all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout the land and it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout the land which the Lord your God has given you. If you're not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God. Now, how could it be any clearer than that? How could it be any clearer than what God has said? If you will obey me, if you'll be faithful and do what I've asked you to do, you'll know nothing but blessing you'll know nothing but provision. You'll know nothing but goodness. But if you choose to disobey me, you'll know nothing but discipline and curse. And it wasn't because God is is some prideful egotist in the sky. He knew that to follow him was what was best for them. He knew what what to follow them was what was good for them. So he says, not only will I give you good things, he says, I will watch over you and protect you. But if you choose to disobey me, I'm going to correct you. Just like a parent does to their child, the parent corrects their child, not because they're angry at them, but because they want them to understand the consequences of disobedience. And they want them to understand that the things that they're doing are not what is best for them. So God is constantly reigning in his people. All you have to do is spend some time in the Old Testament and find out what an up and down encounter this was. The people of Israel would obey and they would find God's blessing and find God's favor. They were an unstoppable force. They could go in with a small army and defeat a mighty army. They could have everything that they needed. And then all of a sudden, the temptations of this world begin to allure them away. They would go into a nation and see that this nation had this or had that. And they would begin to think, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice for us to be able to have just a little bit of what they have? And then they're pulled off into idolatry. And then God corrects them and brings them back. And we see so clearly here God's long-suffering with his people because over and over again he allowed them to disobey and he would correct them and bring them back and again restore to them blessing. And he would, they would veer again and he would bring them back. He would veer again and they would bring them back. But what we find here at this point in time was there had been a period of almost 500 years where the nation of Israel pretty much had forgotten God. They had kind of veered away from from the truth of the Scriptures. And although there were some who were still remained faithful, for the most part, the people had forgotten the Lord. And, and, And many commentators pointed out that it is almost like that perhaps the thought of the people of the day was, oh, well, God has forgotten, right? We've gotten away with this. We should be disciplined, but God hasn't disciplined us. So that must mean that he's just forgotten. He's not actually going to do anything. But let us remind ourselves that God is always faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word to keep his promises to bless us, but he is also faithful to his word to discipline us and correct us. And brothers and sisters, this is a serious reminder to us this morning that even in our own personal lives, God has very clearly told us as believers what we are to do and not to do how we are to live and how we are not to live. And there may be a season of your life where you're doing something and you think you're getting away from it. You think you've escaped the scrutiny of God's eyes. Be very aware this morning that you have not escaped the scrutiny of God's eyes, that he sees it and that he will bring discipline. If you're his, the scripture says that if he loves you, if you're his child, that he will bring correction to you. So don't wait for the Lord's correction. Turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me for those things. Help me to, to do what you've asked me to do. So here we have the nation of Israel, and they have rebelled over and over again. What's getting ready to happen here in this deportation to Babylon, in this conquering of God's city by the kingdom of Babylon, is something that was pointed out all throughout the Scriptures. We see it here in the book of Deuteronomy. We find it in in Second Kings and also in Isaiah, Second Kings chapter 20, it says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up and stored to this day will be carried to Babylon, and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, who you will begat, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 39 Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. So we hear this over and over again. God, God is warning his people. But, but some of those who heard this laughed at it. Some of those who heard this despised it and said, well, that'll never happen. God would never do that. God's never going to allow us and his nation to be carried off into complete captivity, especially by this foreign nation. They failed to heed the word of the Lord. They failed to hear the truth of God speaking to them. God promised that his discipline, once it came on the nation, would remain until it produced repentance. Now, again, I said that Judah was part of this southern kingdom. It was the kingdom that had obeyed a little bit longer. They lasted about 100 years longer than the northern kingdom. However, they had ignored the covenant with God that we find there in Deuteronomy chapter 28. They had neglected the Sabbath. They had neglected the sabbatical year that God commanded them to take every seven years. And so they had eventually fallen into idolatry. Daniel here relays the fact that what's going to happen in this book is a picture of God's judgment. But because of how he phrases this in verse 2, we also see that it's a promise of God's faithfulness. God had promised that even when his people were carried off into judgment, that he would bring them back again. God had promised that even when his people were rebellious, that he was going to remain faithful. And why? Because God had promised from the very beginning that the whole purpose, the whole reason that he had chosen the nation of Israel, the whole reason he had set his hand on this people was because through them, he was going to bring his son. He was going to bring the Messiah. So God was not going to abandon his people halfway along the way, but it also meant that they could not escape the judgment for their disobedience. Brothers and sisters, sometimes God brings discipline to our lives, not because he's abandoning us, because he has promised to complete the work that he started in us. He started a work in us, and he's going to bring it to completion. And sometimes that means he has to take us through seasons of discipline. But also, it means that sometimes we walk through seasons of discouragement, it walks through seasons of trial and tribulation, but God remains no less faithful in those times than he is in the times of great joy and happiness and success. Daniel here was a man who loved the Lord. Daniel here was a man who was not carried off into idolatry like some of the others of the nation of Israel. We find that and understand that because of his firm resolve when he arrives there in Babylon. And we're going to take a look at that next week. But Daniel was someone who loved the Lord. Right, So it would make more sense in our minds that as Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he seizes some of those in that initial raid and carries them off into Babylon, into captivity, it would make more sense in our mind for those who were utterly rebellious, utterly idolatrous, to be carried off into captivity first. But instead, God chose Daniel to be one of those initial ones who was carried off into captivity. Because he's demonstrating something much broader here. He's demonstrating his covenant faithfulness with his people because he's saying to Daniel, Daniel, you have loved me, you have served me, and I'm going to show you that even in the midst of captivity, my faithfulness does not cease. My love for my people does not cease, even in the midst of great difficulty. Judgment had to come upon the nation of Israel because they had continually rebelled against the clear instruction of God but God had also promised his faithfulness to them. God had, almost, had also promised his faithfulness to him. I remember when I was in, in Bible college, learning a little bit of Hebrew along the way, and there's one word in Hebrew, which is chesed, and it means covenant faithfulness. And what it means is it's that faithfulness of God that cannot be stopped. It cannot be undone. We we can make promises to people and, and we can break those promises. When God makes a promise, it cannot be broken. When God makes a covenant with someone, it cannot be undone. Now, we can fail on our part sometimes, but God never fails on his. And he says, I'm going to keep you. You are my people. So here, this book is a beautiful picture in God's faithfulness and declaration of what is yet to still come for the nation of Israel. Daniel writes this book really as a light in the darkness. And there's some beautiful things that Daniel points out in this book as he talks about not just the things that are happening there in Babylon, but as the things that are yet to come, again, as a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his people. I want you to think about it. 70 years. That's the average, almost the average lifespan of a human being in the the United States today. 70, 80 years. That's an entire lifetime of someone. Can you imagine? Most people believe that at the time that Daniel was taken off into Babylon, he was a teenager somewhere around the uh, the age of 15 or 16. Daniel spent his entire adult life in captivity in Babylon, away from the city he loved, away from the temple, away from the ability to worship God the way that he had been brought up as a teenager to do. But Daniel, but God opened up to Daniel to demonstrate to him that said, Daniel, I know you're far from home. I know you're in exile in a foreign land. But don't be discouraged because I'm still doing my work. Don't be discouraged because here are the promises that I'm making to you. Daniel chapter 9, God reveals to him that the Messiah is coming. He's going to show him demonstrably that Jesus the Messiah is coming. Chapter 2, he shows us that God's kingdom fills the entire earth. Chapter 7, he shows us that the saints are going to reign with the Messiah. All throughout this book, God is demonstrating to Daniel the good news of God's kingdom, that nations will rise and nations will fall, but God endures to the end. That no matter what is happening on a worldwide scale, no matter how overwhelming it may seem, no matter how powerful a nation may be, all those nations fall before the name of Jesus. And they cannot stop what God has put in place. They cannot stop God's plans and purposes because all of God's promises will be fulfilled. I want you to think about that for a moment. We have the tendency to look around at what's happening in the world and think, well, oh, oh my, what's the church gonna do? Right? Culture is ever increasingly more hatred against the church, against the teachings of the scripture. And it's very easy for us to sit back and be like, you know, what's what's it gonna be like in ten more years? Right? We got an election next year. What what you know, who who's gonna be president? That's right. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter next year if a Republican's elected, if a Democrat's elected, if a Whig is elected. That's a history lesson for some of you. It doesn't matter, right? Because here in the book of Daniel, the most wicked ruler in the world is seated in a place of power, prestige, and authority over all the nation of Israel, over all the Middle East, Right? He's the one who's ruling and reigning on earth, but Jesus is the one, God is the one who is ruling and reigning in heaven. And nothing is happening on earth that does not happen with his sovereign permission. Everything that happens on earth has to come through the hand of God first. So if next year we have the greatest president we've ever had or we have the worst president we've ever had, it doesn't change anything about God's plans and purposes for this world. He is still doing exactly what he has purposed to do. If he can do exactly what he chose to do through the nation of Israel, through 70 years of exile in Babylon, he can do it through four more years of a president in the United States. His promises will be fulfilled. Daniel was writing as a light in the darkness to those who are in exile in Babylon. He's writing for continuous generations to come after them right? Daniel is is demonstrating his life and and showing his life of one of what it means to remain faithful in the midst of exile. And so others around him saw what he was doing. They were encouraged by it. They were strengthened by it, right? In that passage we read in Psalm 137, you know, how can we have songs to sing in the midst of exile? How can we have these songs to sing in Babylon? It only comes through the strength of God. It only comes through the strength of understanding God's faithfulness, not our ability to be faithful, but God's power in us to be faithful. Daniel was not faithful because he was a mighty man. Daniel was faithful because he was a man who relied upon the strength and the power of God. Daniel was faithful because he relied upon the clear teachings of Scripture and said, I'm going to do what God has told me to do. even in the midst of great trial and judgment. Nothing catches God off guard. Nothing catches God by surprise. Even the acts of the wicked are all under the hand of his sovereignty. We find it here with Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar did not take Judah by his own power, but God gave them into his hand. We find it in in the crucifixion of Jesus, right? If we were to have to pick out the most sinful act that has ever been committed on the face of the earth, it would be the crucifixion of the sinless, perfect son of God. But not one of those nails went into the hand of Jesus outside of God's permission and divine allowance. The most wicked act ever committed was permitted by the hand of God to accomplish his purpose, to accomplish his plans, to accomplish everything that he desires to do. It's not meaningless when we, incur, when we encounter trial and tribulation, but it is purposeful because God will remain faithful. That's what Daniel understood. I believe that's why he starts his book in such a way because Daniel understood that this being carried off into Babylon was not a purposeless thing that happened in his life. It was not meaningless. There was great meaning in what God was doing here because he was demonstrating that, number one, he's serious about his word, he's serious about his commands, but number two, he's going to demonstrate that even in the midst of this difficulty that he is faithful to carry his people through, but he's faithful to fulfill his promises as well. Daniel lived as an exile in a nation that was not his own, among a people who were not his own, in a land that he was unfamiliar with, but he remained faithful. And I would remind you this morning that we are exiles in a foreign land. We're citizens of heaven. Our kingdom is not here. We're in a land surrounded by people who speak a different language than us. We're surrounded by people who who have a different worldview than we do. But we don't have to be discouraged by that. Because just as God placed Daniel in the midst of this exile for his purposes, God has placed us here. We're to live as citizens of heaven. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And to be encouraged by the fact that God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God is a covenant-keeping God in the Old Testament, He's still a covenant-keeping God in the New Testament. And if He has promised to take care of His people in the Old Testament, He has also promised in the New Testament to take care of us as His children. And if He remained faithful for Daniel in 70 years of exile in Babylon, He will remain faithful for us as citizens of heaven living here on earth. God is calling us to trust in His faithfulness. God's calling us to trust in him in the midst of difficulty. God is calling us to rely upon him for the strength that we need in the midst of those moments. That's one of the broad lessons of Daniel is God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And over the next few weeks, we're going to unveil that. We're going to see that over and over again, that God's love and faithfulness endures to his people. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your time in the Word. Lord, I know my own heart has been richly encouraged as I've studied this past week, Lord, to see this beautiful picture. Lord, that we're not to get lost in, in, the, in the seeming heroicism of, of Daniel in, in certain events. But Lord, we're to be called to the picture of you in those events, of your strengthening, but Lord, more importantly, of your faithfulness in those moments, to give your people what they need in the midst of such difficulty. Lord, I pray that as we open this book up over the next few months, that Lord, we will just be ever more in awe of who you are as God that we will be strengthened in the innermost parts. God, to not be drawn to and fro, Lord, to not be discouraged and disheartened, but Lord, to know that your promises are yes and amen. And Lord, to see this beautiful picture, Lord, of your faithfulness, to see this beautiful picture of your promise of Christ, uh, Lord, the, the ultimate demonstration, God, of, of your love and faithfulness to your people and sending him to come to this earth to be our Lord and our Savior. Lord, draw our hearts ever closer to you. Lord, help us not to trust in the strength of our own ability, but to rely upon you. Lord, help us not to be overwhelmed by the things of this earth, but to trust to trust again, Father, in your covenant faithfulness to your people. Lord, guide our hearts as we come to the table together, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name.